The Magical Mystery Tour, November 27th, 
and I'm the Walrus. Those were released just three days prior to the LP. So we already, most of us already had Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane, the Year Rich Men, and On Lays Love. So our perspective, unlike yours, was that, well, wait a minute. You know, we're buying this album, but we already have these singles, so what do we need these songs on there for? So we felt like it was a bit, bit of a ripoff. And the Beatles felt the same way. That's why they didn't like to have singles on their albums. Strawberry Fields, Rubber, and Penny Lane were not on the Sgt. Pepper album. Brian Epstein was getting pressure from EMI to get a record out because they had not released anything since August of 66, which was a long, dry period from August 66 to February. That's the main reason. And the only thing that they had, quote-unquote, in the can ready to go was Strawberry Fields, Rubber, and Penny Lane. So back to Magical Mystery Tour, yeah, I loved it. The album cover is, I have it right here in my hands. It's, you know, it's psychedelic. It's kind of like pop art, you know, the way that the title is in all the different colors, you know, from red, yellow, green, and blue. And there are all, all these stars, you know, the Beatles are in the middle of all these stars, and their name, Beatles, is spelled out in stars. And, of course, they're dressed in animal costumes. Now, the other thing is, is that it came, as you said, with a 24-page color picture book, which was extraordinary. You know, that was really quite nice to see all the different pictures from the movie. So what's going on here is that we have to talk about not only the album, but then we have to talk about the movie as well. So there's really a lot of material to cover with the Beatles come to America and their Magical Mystery Tour album and movie. The movie was shown in the UK, but it was not shown in the US, so we didn't know, even though we saw these pictures, these lovely pictures, when we got the album, we didn't know what the movie was about, because they didn't broadcast it here, because it was a flop in, in the UK for a number of reasons. It was released on Boxing Day, which is the day after Christmas. And a lot of people were not sitting around the TV. This this movie was made for television. And a lot of people, and it was, you know, color film. It had to be in color. Because all, that's the whole, it brings out the whole psychedelic effect when they can do reverse images and psychedelic treatments of, of images and things like that. Well, most people didn't have color TVs in the UK and also in the US. So that's one reason why it was a flop because people were watching this in the UK on black and white TVs and they couldn't really see what the color movie looked like. If you look to your left, ladies and gentlemen, the view is not very inspiring. Ah, but if you look to your right... But the other reason why the movie didn't do well was because we were all used to, well... You know, we had Hard Day's Night. We had Help. Now, the Beatles made this movie themselves. They all had cameras. And uh, two friends of mine were involved with the movie. It was a trip, and it was an acid trip. There, were a lot, there was a lot of acid going around with the Beatles at this time. Paul actually says, you know, he wants to take you away 
And then John whispers in the background, mystery trip. Now, we know what trip means. Yeah, well, it's a double entendre. It's the trip on the coach. By the way, they call, you know, buses, coaches. But it's also a trip as in an acid trip. There's so much going on here. Now, we didn't know that back in 67. We didn't know what we know now, what the Beatles are up to. We just got this album. But the thing that was very curious, even back then when you opened it up, it says that there are four or five magicians. So it's like four or five. Well, what do they mean? Who's the fifth magician? And when you get into the booklet, they don't say four or five magicians. They say the five magicians. So this is all part of the mystery. And then you open up with the first track, and of course it's it's full, basically calling you to all come out, get on the bus, and it's another invitation. It's kind of like what he did with inviting the audience into Sgt. Pepper. There's a lot of similarities, and of course this was recorded right around the same time. I did want to mention that the back cover is is really fascinating, and it was perfect for the time because it's like a kaleidoscope collage of the Beatles all dressed in their white tuxedos when they did that big production number in the movie for Your Mother Should Know. It was a very exciting album. And, you know, me and my friends, we all had it. We talked about the fact that it was a flop. The movie was. The, the album was a big success. Side one is fantastic. Side one, in my opinion, is outstanding, but I already told you about side two and why I think it was a ripoff. So that, that's the beginning of, of my take on Master Mystery Tour album. There's a lot of stuff going on with this album. You have the Beatles' next album comes out basically a year from now, November 22nd, 1968. The singles that happened in 67 was Penny Lane and Strawberry Field came out on February 13th. Penny Lane was one, Strawberry was nine. Then in uh, 7 67 All You Need Is Love is one and Baby or Rich Man is six. Right. Brian Epstein, who died... Uh, in 827, 67, yeah. and then they were on their way to the Maharishi. And then you had a Hello, Goodbye, and I'm the Walrus three days before the album come out. So Hello was exactly. number one, I'm the Walrus, 44. This was a big hit. It was number one for eight weeks. It was up for a Grammy Award for Best Album in 1969, and it lost to Glenn Campbell by the time I get to Phoenix album. So By the time... I get to Phoenix, she'll be rising. Now, I look at it another way. I, I'm a child of the 70s, so when I got this, it looked like Christmas. Uh, there was no packaging of the Beatles that I ever had that was so much fun. I mean, you got your pictures, and you had your Paul is Dead clues, and you had kaleidoscopes and, and, and weird-looking pictures. When it comes to the movie... I did see it. I saw it on NPR, like in, in different uh, variations where they they interrupted it and stuff. But I really felt bad for the heavy set woman that was in it. I felt that she was exploited and used kind of as the gag. Take one. And uh, it was really, really? yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't yeah. think 
it was funny. I felt like she was gasping for air the whole time she was there. I felt that she was the butt of all jokes. Her the camera basically pointed at her the whole time and, and the and the reaction and the spaghetti scene yeah. was gross yeah. and I just what I would have liked to see and they didn't ask me because I was two but what I would have liked to see was that they would have turned this into like a video collage of all these songs. Like your mother should know is awesome. The Blue Jay Way is fun too on the walrus and, and um Strawberry Fields has fantastic videos along with Petty Lane. Just loop them together, have the Beatles introduce them individually, you know, give an extra like five minutes per Beatle. It would have been enough to fill an hour. And the bottom line is they rushed this out after Brian died and there was really no big reason. I mean there's a there's the show must go on could have took a, a break a little, I think. He died and then what? You know, you just put this thing out. Uh, other bands would have maybe said, we can put the brakes on maybe and catch our breath and figure out what we're doing. Mm. But, but I, they kept on mm. moving. Well, you bring up some interesting points, Tom. The heavyset woman, her name is Jessie Robbins, and she played the role. She was Ringo's auntie in the movie. I never thought, I never interpreted her role as being exploited like you mentioned or taken advantage of. I thought she was absolutely wonderful and because she added so much levity to this trip. And the other thing that was really nice is that there's another character on the bus and his name is, uh, the actor is Ivor Cutler, but his name in the movie was Mr. Buster Blood Vessel, which is hysterical. It's not quite mean Mr. Mustard, but it's Mr. Buster Blood Vessel. Jesse and Ivor, or Blood Vessel and, and Ringo's auntie, they fall in love with each other. And there's a beautiful scene in the movie where they're dancing, they're together on the beach, exclaims his love for her. Just wonderful. It's one of the, it's one of the nicest things that happens in the movie. The problem with the movie was that, first of all, the movie and this album is, is Paul McCartney, all, mostly all Paul with the exception of uh, contributions from John with I'm the Walrus, which is major, which we'll talk about, and of course George with his Blue Jay Way. But the film was Paul's idea, and he thought, listen, listen, lads, you know, Brian's gone, so, you know, we've got to stay focused. So he was acting as the manager of the Beatles, in a way in Brian's absence. He had this vision of himself as being an executive producer for Beatle movies going forward. And this was the first one. But there was no script. Ready. Yeah, fellas. Oh, talk about your magical mysteries. I spent half an hour looking for that sugar, I tell you. I was half an hour looking for the sugar. Is there one for me? I was one over here, Richie. Oh, hi, Bonzo. He had ideas, yeah, but the main idea was, okay, listen, lads, you know, we're going to get on the bus, you know, we're going to go around and we're going to see what happens. And that's what they did. And they had little bits here and there, you know, they'd stop for fish and chips or something. But there was no real direction. It was aimless. It was experimental. They were doing an experimental film. They give Ringo credit as the director, by the way, on this movie. But according to Chris Walter, who was there, 
and he saw them all with their own cameras, that they were four individual directors. Well, if you have four different directors shooting different things, probably going to come out to be a bit of a mess. So that's what was going on, and that was, I believe, the reason why this movie got trashed in the reviews. And you're right. At best, what they should have done, they should have done a series of music videos because they were the leading edge and they were the cutting edge, and now they were getting the musically, and now they're getting into visual application like they started to do with Rain and Paperback Rider, but you know, that's more like studio kind of stuff. Control. These music videos, I mean, they're really artistic. And also, as you'd mentioned, the music videos for Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane are brilliant. Now, I remember seeing them back then. It was like, oh my God. They were so innovative. They were getting into the avant-garde. They were taking the avant-garde world of art and music, and, and they were bringing it into their world of music and songwriting and music production. And gosh, yeah, you're right. If they had done that, the movie would have been a much bigger, much bigger success. But this is Paul's baby. This is Paul's album. It's funny. He's done this before with Give My Regards to Broad Street. You think he'd learn his lesson? Oh, well, 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 wait a minute now. Wait a minute. No, that's a terrible Give my regards to Broad Street. I saw that when it came out in New York City. I've watched people walk out of the movie theater at, uh, when I saw it the first week. That was a scripted movie. There was a plot line. He was working on a new album. He hired this one guy to deliver the tapes, and he thought the tapes were stolen, and there was, so there was a whole event of trying to find the missing tapes. You know, there was no plot line with a magical mystery tour. None. Huge difference. And by the way, yes, to your point about give my regards to Broad Street, this is New York City on an evening night on Broadway at a movie theater. I went with my girlfriend at the time and some other friends. There were, with no exaggeration, I would say maybe 15 people in the whole theater. And for, you know, 15 people to go to a movie in New York City is unheard of. It's unheard of. So yeah, yeah, it was not yet. But getting back to Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, just saying, like, like he got hammered for Magical Mystery Tour. He got hammered for Give My Regards to Broad Street. But if you look at his press, like he doesn't really take ownership of it. He kind of just sidewinds it a little. Doesn't fully take the blame, but in theory, they were two of his bombs. You know, this is a bomb. This is a bad idea. There are so many people that were coming to them with actual scripts. They could have easily said, look, we're busy. We just made Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> you know, it's like really busy. Sketch us out something. We'll, we'll look at it. And the fact that they would you know, scrap all these really creative ideas and do some on their own. Just a really bad idea. They learned. You're absolutely correct. It was a mistake. No doubt about it. Yeah. But for me, as a fan of the 70s, and I'll get to your but I'm sorry. This was a, just like a Christmas package of really cool pictures, uh, really good songs. Feels like a greatest hits album. And, you know, they're wearing walrus clothes and some wacky stuff. They're really interesting things to look at. So when it comes down to it, this actually... We'll rank this, but this is my second. So you got Revolver, and then you got... I, it's that high. Yeah, I, I love this album. But. Wow. <laughs> I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know, it was one of your first albums when you were a young lad. Sure. And it made, made a big impression on you. George and John and Ringo, they were not 
into this at all. Mm. You know, they did it, but they were not really into it. And John and George and Ringo were doing their own thing. Paul would say, okay, well, you go off and do something, you know, and I'm going to go and do my thing. So th there was no focus on this, uh, on the making of the movie. I want to tell you one of the funniest things that happened that most people don't know about, and I have a photograph of this. They're driving around through the English countryside, and again, Paul's idea was to just have a bunch of people on the bus, a variety of different types of people. So you had the chubby, jolly auntie, Ringo's auntie. You had a, a midget. He was like the photographer. And you had other actors who had done different things in some films in England. And then a bunch of friends. And, and the idea is just to go out and see what happens. Well, so they're going around, they're driving rather aimlessly. And they come across a little, little footbridge. And this was a pretty big bus. And they get to the bridge. And then all of a sudden, the bus stops. And they're like, oh, hey, what's going on? The bus got stuck on the bridge because the bridge was too narrow for the bus. <laughs> and, there's a, and there's a photograph of the bus stuck on the bridge. It's hysterical. That should have been in the movie. Oh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not in the movie because that certainly would have been hysterical. <laughs> and, and I think John said that because they had Magical Mystery Tour on the side that Fans and photographers were chasing them yes. around through the area. That would have been interesting. So just the whole fish and chips entrance where they walk in is you know, just a yep. mob of people like, right. you know, watching them and then watching them eat. It's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. But, you know, John, as you said, he made sure that they took down the signs on the bus because he, he didn't want, you know, all the fans following them, which is also interesting. Come back. Let them take you away on a magical mystery tour. Coming soon. Let's talk about the first track. Okay. The Magical Mystery Tour. Let's talk about Ma Magical Mystery Tour. By the way, you know, Paul says this is a drug trip. It's a Magical Mystery Tour trip. And again, it's all about, you know, chipping on LSD. And they were all doing it at the time. So that's what's going on here overall. And he even says, roll up, roll up, referring to what? Roll a joint is what he's talking about. Roll up a joint, roll up a joint. And the first track is, I think, excellent. Production-wise, it's similar to the production techniques used when they were working on Sgt. Pepper. Paul and the Beatles want the fans to join them on this trip on the Magical Mystery Tour. And the brass instrument, fanfare, four trumpets, just wonderful. Uh, the trumpets work so well because that's part of the announcement. Come on, come on, roll up, roll up for the magical mystery tour, you know, da 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 kind of thing. Uh, so the the arrangement is terrific. Uh, it, the song does change tempo halfway through or almost toward, or at least toward the ending anyway. It changes beat and it changes tempo.
And then it goes into a third section, which is this ending, which is really dreamy and mysterious and very trippy. This song is awesome. It gives me chills down my spine. Roll up the magical mystery tour. It's a great song, loud. It is. A, it's a jam, and the drumming for Ringo kills. Uh, you're right. The trumpets are awesome. Ambrosia had a hit on this, on the top forty hit, 1976, Magical Mystery Tour. It is a fantastic song. <laughs> Could have been a single, in my opinion. Could have been like a, a double A with the full on the hill. I, I think it would have done really well. All right, the full on the hill. It's a Paul song. Who is the full? Could it be the Maharishi? We don't know. You'll tell me. The flutes are awesome on here. There's a many jazz covers. Sergio Mendez made it in Brazil. Big, oh, yeah, that was a big hit they, after them. They grabbed that right away and had a big yeah. hit in 1968. They're not going to release it as a single. Someone's going to make some money off of it. It's a classic, beautiful song, good video that attached to it. Was that in the movie? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. my goodness. That was, oh, a, yeah. that was a highlight of, of uh, the, the song was awesome. Okay, uh, talk about The Fool on the Hill. This is very fascinating. So, as you say, who is The Fool on the Hill? Paul has said that it was about the Maharishi because he was always giggling. He's a fool, but he's also a wise man. What's interesting is that in the movie, Paul, he un unbeknownst to the other Beatles, during production, he disappeared. Nobody knew where Paul was one day. <laughs> he, went, he flew to France because there was, a, there was a hill in France that he liked. Now, for God's sake, you would think that he'd be able to find a hill in England. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, the English countryside is loaded with lovely hills. But no, 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 Paul wanted to go to France. So he went to Nice, near outside of Nice, France. And the funny thing is, is that he went with a cameraman. And when he landed in France, he was, of course, greeted by the authorities. And Paul didn't have his passport. <laughs> He was, I mean, that's how he must have been stoned out. And he was traveling to another country. Now, he knew that when you go to another country, you have to have a passport. He was able to get away with it because he was, after all, Paul McCartney. So the funny thing is, is that, and it is one of my favorite songs. It is. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. The funny thing is, is that he's singing about the fool on the hill. And when you watch the film, the only person that's on the hill <laughs> is Paul. So it's like, oh, wait a minute now. 
is Paul trying to tell us that he's the fool on the hill? <laughs> and, but it's great, great cinematography. I mean, it's beautiful, beautiful shots, Paul. And he's adorable. He's cute. He's making faces. And he's jumping off a trampoline. And he's, and the sun's going... And he does when the sun, you know, there's the lyric about the sun going down. And there's shots of the sunset. It's really quite wonderful. music is, I think, breathtakingly beautiful. And what's nice about it is that there's a lot of harmonicas again. You know, we talked about the harmonicas on being for the benefit of Mr. Todd. So, again, on this song, John plays the harmonica and George plays the harmonica. And when you listen to it, you can hear that the sound of the harmonicas during parts of this song on the chorus are backwards. So it almost sounds like an accordion. Do things backward, you know, you're reversing the attack and the delay, technically. And it's a brilliant sound that goes along with Paul's song. you got Ringo playing finger cymbals, which is really nice. You mentioned flutes. But this is a Paul McCartney composition. And he's playing piano, acoustic guitar, he's playing the recorder, he's playing the bass, and he's playing a penny whistle. I hear a recorder more than I hear a flute. The yeah. this, that's a recorder. Yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. It's a classic song. So far, you have two amazing songs, and you go right into Flying, which I believe is the only song that all four of them have got credit on. Am I right by saying that? So far, yeah. So far, that's right. Yeah. There's one other one coming up later. The song working title was Aerial Tour Instrumental. Is, is a cool name, but Flying's also good, too. I never get tired of this song, also. It's very, like, funky at the beginning. It's very 60-sounding. Uh, it's a little dated, but it's cool, and I, I love the um, them all singing in unison. I still give it a thumbs up. When you're stoned, you're flying, basically. So another reference to the drugs that were going around sound of the guitar, there's two electric guitar parts. One's played by George. The first guitar part is played by George. The way the electric guitar is produced is unlike any other sounding electric guitar on a Beatles record. It sounds like the guitar sound is squashed. It's being processed in such a way.
And then you have this other mellow toned uh, lead guitar coming in, and that's Paul on lead guitar coming in and playing contrapuntal uh, lead guitar part with George. There's a lot of tape loops going on here, and John's playing the Mellotron and an organ, so he's doing keyboards and tape loops, and then we have Ringo also doing tape loops. Now, it's very interesting. Ringo first started doing tape loops back on Revolver, if you recall. He did tape loops when we talked about uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. You know, all the Beatles made tape loops for Tomorrow Never Knows, which, by the way, <laughs> what the hell was a tape loop? No one even knew what the hell it was. And I remember listening to that, you know, and it sounded like a bunch of seagulls trying, which, in fact, it was actually Paul's voice sped up and played backwards laughing. But back to flying, the, the sound of, of flying is very appropriate for this album. It's very, very trippy, especially the ending. It's nice because even though it's an instrumental, we have all four Beatles that at one point singing the melody. La, 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 all four, which is really nice. And, but the ending is completely tripped out. Again, trip, right? Magical mystery, should have called it the magical mystery trip. <laughs> but anyhow, and what they did was at the ending, when you listen to it, Tom, as I'm sure you've had many, many times, I know you have, there's a lot of backward tape loops going on. It's like this uh, slapping noise, and it's, uh, again, very mysterious. It's like, okay, where are they going with this? Where are we going on this bus ride, on this magical mystery tour, now that we're quote-unquote flying? We're flying on a bus. That's what's going on. <laughs> it's interesting and it's very unusual it's nothing that they've done before you're like oh this is a filler but it's an interesting filler and it matches the the movie perfectly for what it's being used for to me it stands alone i think just because it's it's a creative filler the blue jay way is the next song it's a george song kind of documenting his experience in the hollywood hills i love this song i love the the again the drum tom tom like of the drums at the beginning, do, do, do. It's very ominous, and the the background swirls of the the vocals in the background. Yeah. And at the end, dun 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 dun. dun, dun. Very awesome. Very, very cool song. I think when we talked about George Harris before, I always said how great his his work is with the Beatles. This is a great song. You know, it's, it's not even one of his best. It's just still a great song. I have a lot to say about this song. George was staying at a house up in the Hollywood Hills on a street 
by the name the street was called and is called to this very day. Blue Jay Way, that's the name of the street. Now, how did George end up on Blue Jay Way? Well, I know how he did. I uh, had a very close friend uh, who is no longer with us, and his name is Robert Fitzpatrick. Robert Fitzpatrick, Brian Epstein, hired Robert to be the Beatles' attorney for the West Coast. Brian contacted Robert and said, hey, listen, uh, George is going to go out to California, and he's going to go to Los Angeles for a week before he goes up to San Francisco. And do you know where he can stay? So as it turned out, Robert was just about ready to leave to go to his vacation home in Hawaii. So Robert said, well, George can stay at my house. So George stayed at Robert Fitzpatrick's house on Blue Jay Way. Now, he's waiting for Derek Taylor to show up, who was working with the Beatles. But Derek and Brian had a huge falling out, and Derek quit. Uh, Derek continued on to be a publicist for the Birds and the Beach Boys, uh, just to name a few musical acts. Derek was coming in from London to Los Angeles that night with his wife on August 1st, and George was waiting to greet Derek and his wife. It happened to be a foggy night in August, which is a bit unusual, actually, out here. Derek got lost because the, the roads, I don't know if you've been up to the Hollywood Hills, but when you go north off of Sunset up into the hills, you know, the streets are narrow and they're very windy, and if it's foggy out, it took two hours for Derek to try to find Robert's house. And at this point, you know, George jet-lagged because he flew in just from London just before that. And he's exhausted. He wants to go to bed. But he's trying to stay up to greet Derek and his wife, Jen. In order to do that, Robert Fitzpatrick had this small little organ in his house. And on that very organ, George started writing Blue Jay Way. And as you said, it's the lyrics. He's writing about the actual evening, about what was going on. And as a matter of fact, I have a copy of the lyrics on Robert Fitzpatrick's letterhead. So, you know, in case anyone has any doubts about the story that I'm telling you right now, it's a, a dreamy, very dreamy song, you know, especially in the beginning, because George is, he's falling asleep. There's a song upon LA. <laughs> it's like, in other words, gosh, I'm really tired. <laughs> Really, the way he sounds tired when he's singing the vocals, which parallels and underscores what he was going through, you know, that night on Blue Jay Way, waiting for Derek and his wife. I was trying to figure out if you like this song, just by the way you were talking. Like, I think you're you're giving some context and, and, and texture about what the song's about. But when it boils down to it, are you are you loving this song? Do you like? Oh, this I song? love this. I uh -huh. I, I absolutely love absolutely love this song. Okay. It's a magical track. It absolutely belongs on this album because it's, it's magical and it's kind of mysterious sounding. But what I wanted to mention to you and to, to your audience is that George went to L.A. to be with Derek for a week. And he also met with Robbie Shankar in Los Angeles at that same time. Then Derek and Patty Harrison, because they were married at the time, and uh, Derek's wife, Jan, and, and I, just, I don't know who the other people were, but they, they went up to San Francisco. This is during August 1967. This is the peak 
of the summer of love, Tom. And I assure you, with no exaggeration, that was the case. I was in Los Angeles in August 1967. I didn't know that George was. I knew that I heard rumors that the Beatles were going to be in San Francisco, is where we were hearing. So he goes up to San Francisco, because he thinks, you know, this is the epicenter of the peace movement, of the flower children, of the all you need is love, summer of love, we've got to go to San Francisco. Be sure to wear flowers in your hair. I mean, this is where it was at. So they go up to San Francisco, they get up to Haight-Asbury, and before they get out of the limousine, uh, George decided to take some LSD because he was doing a lot of acid back then. So all of them took acid. And it came on pretty fast, supposedly. I guess it did. So now they're getting out of the limo, and they're walking around, and there are crowds of people. And now people are surrounding George, and now he's really starting to come on strong with the acid. And he gets a hold of a guitar, and he starts playing songs on an acoustic guitar. He's wearing, by the way, he's wearing Indian print trousers, and he's got heart-shaped sunglasses on. I've got photographs of this. I mean, it's really quite beautiful. It's a cool-looking cool picture. Yeah, I agree with you. Oh, God, yeah. However, now he's starting to freak out because now he's getting more and more turned on with the LSD, and he's starting to hallucinate. So they dash back to the limo, and he's in the limo, and then he looks out the window, and he sees all of these faces of fans smashing their faces against the glass windows. <laughs> so it's just a little little sidebar onto what was going on, you know, with George after he spent a week in Los Angeles. He was there in San Francisco. He was very, very disappointed in what he saw. That he would have been, you know, involved around people who were artists, who were being creative and creative musicians. And he discovered that they were just a bunch of hippies that were drug addicts and a bunch of dropouts. And after that, he then decided that, you know, drugs really was not the way to go, supposedly. He kind of chilled out on it. Now, getting back to the song, there's something, of course, when he goes, please don't be long, and then John and Paul, don't be long. Please don't be long. Please don't you be long. Well, there's a double entendre, which the Beatles love to do with, you know, wordplay. There's like, don't be long, as in, you know, don't take so long to get here, Derek, to the house. But then there's also, don't be long, as in other words, don't be attached to anything, which does apply to the times, because the counterculture was you didn't want to be attached to what was going on in society you know, the status quo. So don't belong to that. Belong to the new movement. Be a part of the flower power. Be a part of the summer of love. Be part of what the Beatles were doing. And all you need is love. And have nothing to do, basically, you know, with what your parents are doing. The cello in the song is brilliant. But what's even more brilliant is that they took part of the song 
and they reversed the entire song, and they mixed it in during different parts of Blue Jay Way. I mean, from a production perspective, we know that the Beatles were fond of backward recording techniques, you know, starting with back to the days of Revolver and I'm Always Sleeping with George's backward guitar part, not to mention Tomorrow Never Knows, etc. But this is an amazing, amazing effect. When you listen to it, you don't know what the hell's, what's happening. Well, now you know what it is, and I think it's done absolutely brilliantly and very tastefully. Don't be long to a movement that now George Harrison has condemned. It's like, <laughs> it's like okay, now he got the full picture. He's not into it. So he, yeah, you know, yeah well, he, at least he, not, not as what he's seeing in the U.S., certainly not in San Francisco. Sure, it's back yeah. to the Maurici and, and to the next thing. That's uh, exactly right. That's exactly right. The next song is Your Mother Should Know. It is a, one of those retro Paul songs that he loves to do. By far, when you see the video that from the movie, they are having so much fun that, you know, everyone's kind of laughing through it. It's, it's a lot of fun. It really elevates the song, I believe. I love this song also. Yeah, Your Mother Should Know, 100% Paul. Paul's on the piano, bass. John's on the organ. The background vocals are superb. And as you said, it's a, like a music hall 1930s number, production number. Let's all get up and dance to a song that was a hit before your mother was born. You know, kind of like an old-fashioned, uh, what's his name, a Busby Berkeley kind of look. That's the style of the song. And in terms of the movie... They did this as the closing number on the movie, which is a good idea because it was a huge production number. You know, they're walking down this huge spiral staircase and they're decked out in, in white tuxedos. Now, this would have been a great song to sing on the bus. I mean, could you imagine everybody going, It would have been perfect, but they didn't do that. The strange thing about this, uh, the production number in the movie, is that John, George, Ringo wearing red carnations, and Paul is wearing a black carnation uh, in his lapel. Now, Tom, let me ask you a question. Other than what I just mentioned, have you ever seen a black carnation when you go into a flower shop? I don't think I've ever saw one. No, they don't exist. <laughs> There's no... You can't grow a black carnation. So what the hell is Paul doing with a black carnation? Someone asked him years later, hey, Paul, you know, how come you have a black carnation on your lapel? Well, well, they ran out of red ones, you know, so they gave me a black one. You know, which is a load of rubbish. I mean, listen, I love Paul McCartney very, very much. But, you know, when you start, start seeing stuff like that, well, you know, they gave you a black one because they ran out of red ones. You, you know that's a bunch of rubbish. So it's a great song. It's a toe capper. And it's a tribute to moms out there. It's like, your mom's all right kind of thing. It's, it's like a nod to the parent, to the mother. That's what Paul's doing, which is something that Paul would do. Not the same way as she's leaving home, but there is a bit of a similarity in terms of you know, acknowledging the parent. This is a, a super strong album cut. You were talking about the Black Carnation. It's the same deal as Paul 
wearing flip flops for the the Abbey Road, and they asked why he took it off. He goes, "Well, because it was hot." <laughs> so, so, a little little ill fit logic there. So it's so hot, I want to burn my feet on the pavement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> and uh, talk about. If you want to put some pause that clues you got, I'm the Eggman, I'm the Walrus. Uh, oh boy! Yeah, uh, what a great song! What a great song! I was listening to it just for this. This is the first song that they they produced after Brian's death. Eric Burden thinks he's the Eggman. The, Eric Burden's from the Animals. The video is fantastic. It's weird. It's fun. It's very shocking that this isn't a number one for some reason. Maybe it's too over the top. I I don't know. If you had Strawberry Fields Forever first, and people were already prepped that you know the Beatles could kind of come out with something like this, to have on the Walrus, you think, oh, okay, you know, this is great, and it's it's. I'm glad they released it as a single. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> so I am the Walrus. Now, this was released as the B side to Hello Goodbye, and John was extremely disappointed about that because he wanted Walrus to be the A-side. And supposedly, he was so upset that he kind of, you know, he didn't throw in the towel, but he was kind of like, you know, screwed in a way. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, that's how disappointed he was because he wanted to bring the band more in that direction away from the, the poppy Hello Goodbye. When I first heard I'm the Walrus, I thought that I had lost my mind. It's mind-blowing, mind-boggling. It's completely innovative. It's cutting new ground. It's things that we have never heard before. It's avant-garde. It's psychedelic. It's found art. In other words, taking the source sound of a radio and just screwing around with the radio when you're mixing and then just flying it in on the fly, of mixing it into the song at random, arbitrarily. I mean, this kind of stuff, Tom, at the time, is almost difficult to take. It's so, uh, it's unfathomable, really, when you think about it. And that's what they were doing, and this is John's doing. This is his song. Now, John said that the first verse he wrote after taking an acid trip then he took another acid trip, and then he wrote the second verse. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, I could see that, you know. You can hear that in the lyrics. I mean, these lyrics are like, what in the hell is he talking about? What is he talking about? Climbing up the Eiffel Tower, singing Hare Krishna, man, you should have seen him kicking Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, come on. What is all that, you know? Sitting on a cornflake waiting for the van to come. Well, I know where that came from, in a way. But also, like, you know, yellow matter custard dripping from a dead dog's eye. These lyrics are the imagery. It's, it's almost absurd. But John Lennon could do it in such a way that it just completely captivated most listeners, even though they didn't know what in the world he was singing about. And then there is an interruption in the song. It's a total interruption because, you know, this is, hey, me, me, 
Yanni. And of course, that, by the way, that melody, May I am me as you are me, is based upon the sound of a siren in the UK. You can hear it. Okay. mind of John Lennon, he hears a, you know, sirens going by and goes, oh, hey, that's a great melody for a song, you know? Incredible. Okay. So, I am the Eggman. They are the Eggman. I am the walrus. Goo-goo-ga-choop. Well, you know, what is a goo-goo-ga-choop? Does anybody know what a goo-goo-ga-choop is? No. It's gibberish. But it sounds good. And then all of a sudden, there's like this interruption. Sitting in an English garden, which is like a whole other song comes in, in the middle of this really abstract avant-garde song. It's so different to begin with, and then it becomes even more different. It's like, how far can he push the envelope? John Lennon had no limit to his creative abilities. And this, to me, probably just as much as Strawberry Fields Forever. I would say that those, these two songs, Strawberry Fields and Walrus, that these two songs are the absolute apex of him incorporating all of these different elements I've mentioned. The avant-garde world, found music, the bringing in the radio, the abstract lyrics, all of this stuff. And then, to top it all off, then at the end of the song, which we'll get into, you know, there's a whole out chorus, and, and George Martin brought in a bunch of, like, 16 singers to sing the chorus. Let's talk more about this, okay? Lewis Carroll was a big influence on John. And in particular, there was a poem called The Walrus and the Carpenter. Except later in life, John said he screwed up because the walrus was the bad guy and the carpenter was the good guy. <laughs> so, What's interesting about this musically, among many other things, is that unlike most songs, except for the three chord songs like Twist and Shout and you know the simple songs where there's only three major chords, okay? It's like C, F, G, C major, F major, G major. And that's it, right? Well, in this song, there's every chord in the musical alphabet, every chord, and they're all major chords. So the chord uses A major, B major, C major, D major, E major, F major, G major, and then repeats again to A major. No one had ever done this before. So again, just from a harmonic perspective, this is completely unheard of. And it works like a friggin' masterpiece. It is a masterpiece for so many reasons. That's one of the reasons why, because of what's going on harmonically. 
he does make a reference to Lucy in the sky, which is kind of interesting, because he says, see how they fly like Lucy in the sky. Lyrically, he's bringing that in to this song, which has nothing to do with the walrus, but it's an abstract, so it works. The Yellow Matter Custard and Dead Dog's Eye was really a rewrite of a nursery rhyme that John and his buddy, Pete Shotton, now Pete Shotton was his buddy from Liverpool when they were kids, you know, when they were in their single digits. And this came from a nursery rhyme. That's where those lyrics came from. And it fit in. It fit in with this song. That's exactly right. But when you look at the album cover, if you look carefully, they're dressed in animal costumes, right? And you figured, well, John's got to be the walrus, right? Wrong. If you look at the album cover, John, who was wearing his round wire rim glasses, is wearing a different costume, and, and the walrus is Paul. Paul's dressed up as a walrus on the cover of Magical Mystery Tour. So, you know, here again, you know, it's part of the inconsistency and in the mystery surrounding the whole Beatles and how people are trying to interpret everything. The walrus is Paul. The Eggman, however, is Eric Burden. And how do I know that Eric Burden is the Eggman? Because John, back in the swing in London 60s and elsewhere in the country and in the U.S., would go, you know, there'd be parties all the time. Well, Eric Burden was part of the, you know, the London music scene, along with Mick Jagger and Pete Townsend and, and Keith Moon and all the bands that were going around at the time. And at one party, and John witnessed one night that Eric had a girl with him, and she was naked. And Eric got some eggs from a nearby fridge, and he cracked the eggs over her breasts. So the, the egg man is Eric Burden, and not too many people know that. And I know that's true because that's according to John Lennon. Now, that's fascinating in itself, just as a backstory. Ending as a counterpoint, the bass goes down, the bass line goes down while the strings go up. And again, harmonically, you know, compositionally, this stuff is so this stuff is so advanced. You know, nobody is doing anything like this. I don't know how they came up with these ideas. I really don't. John's voice is very bright, very nasally, and he wanted it that way. 
he asked for the engineers to make it sound that way. So they used a cheap microphone to get that nasally tone on his vocal. This song is a complete masterpiece. The ending is another thing that's open to interpretation. What are they saying at the end, Tom, during the out chorus? Everybody's got one. Yeah, okay. So you hear everybody's got one. Now, the printed lyric on lyric sheets and lyric books, uh, music books that I have, it says, oompa, oompa. Everybody's oompa. What is an oompa? Nobody knows. Some people say an oompa is in an umbrella. I don't know. But what they did was they had these 16 singers that George Martin worked with, and he multi-tracked their voices. First they sang, oompa, oompa, everybody's oompa. And this is what I hear. And you see, that the trick is, is that when you say three different things at the same time, you don't know what the hell they're saying. And it's open to interpretation. But I'm going to tell you what the two other things that they're say saying that's mixed in and camouflaged. One is everybody smokes pot, everybody smokes pot, everybody smokes pot. And the other one is, can I say the F word on the station or no? Oh, yeah, sure. I can't. Oh, oh, well, oh, the, in the podcast part, not on the state, I don't know. But yeah, we oh. can say in the podcast. And then the other thing that they mixed in was everybody's fucked up. And when you mix them all together, you don't know, you can't really make out what they're saying. So that's what's going on. And again, to have all of these things that I talked about, and forgive me for being so long-winded on this song, but I have to because there's so much going on. This is an absolute masterpiece that no one else could have ever done. And as I mentioned before, I believe that this is the apex of this type of song for John, along with Strawberry Fields Forever. They've come a long way from I Want to Hold Your Hand three years ago, right? Oh, <laughs> oh my God. No one is able to duplicate this, like all the no. other bands, and they pivot away from it really quickly, which is it's really interesting that they could have kept on going in this direction. And I Okay, so we're going to turn this album over, side two, and it's Hello, Goodbye, and it's a Paul song. It's the first single released after Brian's death. It has a, a great power pop sound to it. Singles by The Cure. Paul is a Gemini. He said it's duality, like night, day hello goodbye so it's complete opposite it was he said it was really easy to write once he figured out hello goodbye and uh the video that goes along with it is a lot of i again this is one of those great songs i i don't know the weight of i'm a walrus versus hello goodbye you know i i don't know if i mean i understand that he wants to have the a sides and and it is more creative but i don't know if the world was ready for that you know but Hello, goodbye. They were definitely ready for it, and it was number one. Yeah, yeah, that's true, and that's why they—that's why George Martin and everyone um, in the Beatle camp. Uh, that's why they decided that Hello, goodbye would be the A side. You mentioned the duality. You say hi, I say low. You say stop, I say go. You say yes, I say no. Which was really very clever. The sound uh, on this record of Hello Goodbye is really superb. Uh, of course, we got, you know, Paul doing the lead vocal naturally, but he also does the backing vocals, he does the bass, he does the piano, he's playing percussion, 
But we have John playing uh, some lead guitar, which is, you know, John didn't play that much lead guitar with the Beatles in 1967. Not that much. It was usually either George or Paul. So John's playing lead, and then George is playing lead. He's playing the predominantly guitar part. The background vocals are superb, and there's a lot of reverb uh, on the background vocals. And we have to mention uh, that there's two violos, violas on the track, which, of course, George Martin arranged. And they are just, they're so perfect, the way he used them along with Paul's vocal melody. And then there's that wonderful break in the middle where the the lead guitar it sounds like it's floating through the air i mean i remember listening to this on the radio with a buddy of mine in this little sports car in connecticut in december of 67 it's like this you know almost like a a weeping guitar you know it's almost like a weeping guitar so this is a, a an absolute number one which of course it was and I love it now. And the ending, however, is, you know, the ending coda. It's double time. So, you know, hey, la, hey, bay, lo, la. You know, it's twice, it's like twice the tempo. They're having a tremendous amount of fun. You can hear them having a ball. And this was, by the way, this was John's favorite part of the song was the coda, was the ending. And what they're doing is, especially Paul, you can hear him. He's improvising. That kind of thing. This is an indication of what he did. Not so much here, but it's an indication of what he's going to do on the long coda of Hey Jude. When he does all that improvising, you know, vocally, you know, which we'll get into later. So you can see, you know, how the threads, if you will, you know, that exist from song or album to album. And, you know, they did a coda, a double time coda, as you know, at the end of Ticket to Ride as well. So it's a, it's a technique uh, that they used periodically. Obviously, this is one instance when they did that again. Let me take you down Cause I'm going to 
next song is Strawberry Fields Forever. It reached number eight, so it was a, a double side. You got Penny Lane on one side, Strawberry Fields Forever on the B side, or the double A. It hit number eight. It didn't hit number one, but Penny Lane did. Two songs about their past, which is pretty awesome. The song is amazing. They have covers by Todd Rundgren, Peter Gabriel, Ben Harper. Let me take you down. Nothing is real And there's nothing to get on about Strawberry feels forever Now mind you, you know, this is February And Walrus came out in December So this is like, what, nine months before Walrus And we're listening to this Now, the single that was released before Strawberry Feels Forever Was Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine. Now, you want to talk about jumping ahead or leaping into another completely different sound. The Beatles were masters at reinventing themselves. This was the beginning of another stage of their reinventing. They reinvented themselves from a hard day's night. They reinvented themselves. With help, they reinvented themselves with rubber sole. They completely reinvented and revolutionized the recording industry with Revolver. And now we go from Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine to this orgasmic sound of a song that no one had ever heard anything like it before. Again, the Beatles blew everything off the table. This was where it's at. This is the new direction. This is the new reinvention of the Beatles, complete with a physical makeover, with the sleeve of the mall sporting mustaches and George with the mustache and a goatee, and George wearing like a long Indian jacket, and the Beatles are backlit, you know, there's backlighting. And then on the other side, there's photographs of the Beatles when they were babies. This was something at the time that we were we were awestruck. We were completely awestruck. And the sound of this song was nothing like anybody had ever heard before. And again, there's the Lewis Carroll influence referencing, I think this is Jabberwocky is the piece that Lewis Carroll wrote. There's a reference. You can make a connection there. When he says that no one I think is in my tree. No one I think is in my tree. What he's, John is saying is that he's alone, is that nobody understands him. You know, he felt like even when he was, um, you know, a, a young lad and in school, that nobody really understood who he was and what he was doing. And that's a reference. That's, that lyric is certainly a reference to that. And then what they do is, in addition to Ringo's drumming, by the way, and this is, I don't know how he came up with the drumming. I mean, his drumming during this time period was, I think, some of the best drumming he ever did. Then, you know, we've got four trumpets, we've got three cellos arranged by George Martin. Mm -hmm. 
and we've got the fade out. Okay. Wow. You, you, we just heard this incredible song and it fades out. We think, oh my God, that was amazing. Oh, wait, wait a minute. What? It comes back in. <laughs> and it comes back in backwards. So, I mean, come on, come on, Tom. I mean, this, this kind of stuff uh, was, again, pushing the envelope. And in terms of artistry and creativity and songwriting, that this is another masterpiece, as I mentioned, along with I Am the Walrus. However, this is, of course, about nine months prior to Walrus. It, to this day, people are blown away by the song, as they should be. I buried Paul or a cranberry sauce. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the song. Now, what do you hear, my friend? I've always heard I buried Paul. And then I read that it said cranberry sauce. And then I was like, uh, okay, well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but I always thought it was I buried Paul. <laughs> I always heard it as I buried Paul. Now, at the time, when I heard it in February 1967, I had no idea what it was. He's just, you know, he's just doing some gibberish at the end of the song. Then finally people would say, oh, it's I buried Paul, especially when the whole death hoax started in the fall of 1969, which is two and a half years later. But the other thing that's worth mentioning is that this song does deal with illusion. I mean, after all, John is saying, nothing is real. Oh, my God. If nothing is real, then everything is an illusion, which certainly is a reference to George Harrison's lyrics in Within You and Without You. So there's another interesting connection lyrically. Yeah, psychedelic backward recording techniques. back behind the shelter in the middle of the we're at Penny Lane. It's a, uh, a pretty Paul song about Penny Lane itself. It is uh, ranked 456 of the best 500 songs of all time. Radio stations were playing uh, both these songs simultaneously, you know, because it was a double A. And I think Paul did an amazing job. This is in two different keys, by the way. You start a song with a B chord or a C chord or what have you. The verses are in the key of B, and then he does a borrowed dominant modulation to go from B to the chorus in A. Very strange, Penny Lane is in my ears and in my Again, this kind of stuff might be going on with some composers back in the day, back in the time of maybe Robert Schumann or something. But this was not going on in the, in the world of rock and roll and pop. Paul did it, and he did it very beautifully and seamlessly. You wouldn't even know what I'm talking about if I didn't mention it to you, Tom. His bass line is a very moving bass line on the verses. It's almost like a walking bass. 
And he does the same thing during the instrumental solo with the piccolo trumpet, which we'll get into when we get to that. Again, McCartney's musical ability is really glowing and shining in this song. This is a, you talk about a keyboard sound. I mean, there's pianos all over the place in this song. This is so piano-centric, extremely piano-centric. I believe there's four piano tracks on Penny Lane. So what we got going on here now? We get to the uh, instrumental solo, and George Martin had, I don't know if you heard the demo or not, they did one version where George Martin did this whole arrangement where he had oboes and English horn and flugel horn and some trumpets and flutes and a piccolo or a lot of instruments. It's a clean machine. Paul didn't like it. He wasn't happy with it. So what happened was, is that around this time, he heard the second Brandenburg concerto by Johann Sebastian Bach, which, of course, is a very Baroque compositional style of music. And in it is a piccolo trumpet. And a piccolo trumpet is like a trumpet. However, it's higher in, in its register, so it can hit higher notes. So after Paul heard Bach, he said to George Martin, he said, you know, I'd like to have the piccolo trumpet instead of what you did with the orchestra. So, and Paul had an idea for the melody. So he worked with George Martin and wrote, George wrote out the part. And he brings in Dave Mason, nothing to do with the Dave Mason from Traffic, by the way, a completely different Dave Mason. He plays with the London Symphony Orchestra. And he plays this incredible solo in the middle of Penny Lane. And he also plays it toward the ending of the song as well. a pop baroque song it's because of that piccolo trumpet it's a fusion we're getting into fusion i mean the beatles have been doing fusion for the past two years anyway so this is no big deal of fusion but this is fusing baroque with pop in a way unlike what paul did with fusing baroque and pop with for no one so in other words they, the beatles were moving and advancing so much so that they were leaving some of the rock and rollers in the dust because you couldn't play these songs. At the end of the single, Penny Lane, and then the piccolo trumpet continued. Bum, 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 bum. And then sound effect of kind of like the reverse cymbal. And then my girlfriend, she bought the single, and it didn't have the piccolo at the end. So there's two different releases by Capital, by the way. One with the piccolo ending, piccolo, piccolo trumpet ending, and one without. So if you have the one with the piccolo trumpet ending, hold on to it because that's worth more. I prefer the one with the piccolo ending trumpet. I don't know why they made that change, but they did. I love this song. I think it's a masterpiece. Absolutely. 
All right. So far, I'm not hearing you say anything negative about Magical Mystery Tour album. Baby, you're a rich man. It's one of those deep cut Beatles songs that I love. And it's all because of the bass. The bass on this song is like something I've never heard before. And it's funky and it basically dominates the whole song. I can understand why it's not a hit, but it's good. It's a great song. It's an amazing B-side. And in context, this is July now, you know, July 7th, 1967, released as the B-side to All You Need Is Love. The sound of this song, as you mentioned, the bass is fantastic, yes. The sound of the song, the thing that strikes me the most amazing is an instrument that John played called called the clap feeling and it's that it sounds like an oboe it sounds like an oboe on acid (laughs) that's what it sounds like you know it's the most unusual sound you know and john did an amazing job playing that and it's another instrument we talked about before how part of the Beatles' evolution in terms of how they evolved as a band and the way they evolved with the sound of the band is by using different instruments. And this is a great example of using a new instrument now that we've never heard before. And then we've got Paul with that amazing bass line. He plays piano as well. George is on the lead guitar, and the sound of the guitar is very unusual very different. Ringo's drumming is off, it's off the charts. I don't know, again, what was going on with Ringo. His drumming during this time period. I mean, you listen carefully to the drums and the roles that he's doing. Yeah, I never heard Ringo play drums like this before. He never did. He never did. Mick Jagger sings the vocals on the chorus. And the thing that we need to mention about this song is that these are two entirely different songs. We have John with his song was called One of the Beautiful People, you know, How Does It Feel to Be One of the Beautiful People? And then Paul's bit is Baby, You're a Rich Man. You wouldn't know that they were two different songs, would you? I mean, they sound like it's just, you know, one song, right? And the thing that is a little disturbing, or you could say very disturbing, is that the lyrics... Uh, so who's the rich man? Do you know who the rich man is? I think you do now, Tom. Well, I'm going to say this is a whole Brian Epstein song. Yeah, it's a Brian Epstein song, right. Yeah, so Brian's a rich man, and of course, the Beatles are rich men. Are you kidding me? You know, they were, at this point, they were extremely rich. So you could say in a way that it's a bit of a parody, you know, on themselves. You could interpret it that way. But at the end of the song, during the chorus, you know what John sings? There's a sing in the chorus. Baby, you're a rich fag Jew. Baby, you're a rich fag. Baby, you're a rich fag. Baby, you're a rich fag Jew. Baby, you're a rich fag. Baby, you're a rich fag Jew. Now, you know, John was a smart ass, and he used to tease. Brian, because he knew about Brian's private life. And he did that. And 
it's kind of, kind of cruel, actually, I think. But it's on the fade out, and it's mixed in with George and Mick Jagger and Cross singing the chorus as well. So you, if you don't know about it, you might not hear it. But you hear it. Evidently, you hear it, and I hear it, too. Yeah, it's real obvious. I mean, if you listen for it, it's there. It, and uh, it is cruel. It sounds very cruel. And, you know, I don't know the full backstory if they were over Brian by the time that he passed, because this song came out about a month before he passed. Fat Boys uh, made Baby or Rich Man a top 40 single, but the hip-hop Fat Boys. And, uh, right. yeah, we're into All You Need Is Love. It could not have come out at a more perfect time. Again, context. This is the beginning of the summer. This is the summer of love. And I'm telling you, I was there. You know, I traveled to Los Angeles. I saw the hippies. I was wearing some mob clothing. My girlfriend had flowers in her hair when we flew on the plane. We were passing out flowers to our friends at the airport. This was real, the summer of love. And when this song came out, this was the anthem for the summer. Absolutely. Everybody loved it. Everybody sang it. This is a John song, of course. And it tied in with the Our World satellite broadcast which happened in front of like 350 million viewers or something like that worldwide on June 25th. So the broadcast, it happened, I want to say that it happened, yeah, it happened before the release of the single. This is Steve Race in the Beatles recording studio in London, where the latest Beatle record is at this moment being built up. Not just a single performance, but a whole montage of performances, with some friends in to help the atmosphere that is quite an occasion. Okay, Richard, kill it. Right. Oh, that's very good. Thank you, John. That's fine. Thanks. I think that will do for the vocal backing. Very nicely. We'll get the musicians in now. And we'll do the last Oh, great, great. Okay. Run back the tape, please, Richard. There's several days' work on that tape. For perhaps the hundredth time, the engineer runs it back to the start for yet another stage in the making of an almost certain hit record. The music on this song is pure John, because, as we mentioned before, John liked to change his time signatures. Oh, we go from a 4-4, four, four. oh, let's do a waltz now. Let's go back to the 4-4. Four, four. Oh, how about a bar of 5-4 beats? The verse is in 7-4 time, which, again, is very, very unusual in rock and pop. Chorus is in 4-4, four, four. but it goes back and forth now in the time signatures. Now, it opens up with the French national anthem. Now, here's a question for you, Tom. Why did they not choose an English national anthem? I don't know. I mean, I know they like to go to France. I know that they used to go to France before they were superstars. China Paul took a trip to Paris. They played at the Olympia Theater in Paris in January 1964 when they found out that they had their first number one in the U.S. But I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question you know, that they would choose the French national anthem. I don't know why they didn't do it. Because, you know, there's a number of different English compositions that, you know, use those types of, of instruments. Love, love, love. Or 
with isn't France like a place for love? And, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'll yeah. go for that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's awesome. Okay. It's a great opening. It works perfect. And to your point, yeah, France is the land of love. So here's an explanation. So thanks for bringing that to our attention. Now, the song is John all over the place. And it's as if when he wrote the song, The Word, remember on Rubber Soul, saying that the word is love, it's so fine that sunshine, the word love. It's taking the, the word love to the max here and to the excess and saying, all we need is love. Love is all we need and nothing else. I mean, that is an extreme. I mean, this is complete optimism. He's also saying that you can do anything, anything at all. And it is, you know, there's nothing that you can do that can't be done. Oh, my God. And it can be done with love. What a statement to make. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say that you can learn how to play the game. You've got George Martin, who did a brilliant job. He's got violins, and cellos, and saxophones, and trumpets, a flugelhorn, and trombones, and an accordion. An amazing job. Then you've got George playing some lead guitar, and supposedly he plays some violin. You've got Paul playing the bass and the upright bass, and John on the harpsichord and banjo. And then toward the end of the song, again, this is avant-garde. This is electronic music and that avant-gardism. You're bringing in Bach on the piccolo trumpet, also played by David Mason again. You've got green sleeves, and then you've got She Loves You coming in on the vocals. Now, she loved you coming in in the vocals is really interpretive. What is that all about? Well, if you're saying all you need is love, they're making the connection that I was just alluding to earlier. They're making it. They're saying, yes, all you need is love now. But remember, we told you three years ago that she loves you, and you know that can't be bad. So they're making the connection. You know, they're tying what they did three years, three and a half years prior to what's doing in July of 1967. And that, just that in and of itself, is absolutely brilliant. The chorus, there's a huge chorus on here. Singers, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, Marianne Faithful, Jane Asher, Patty Boyd Harrison, Mike McGear, Keith Moon is singing from The Who, and Graham Nash from The Hollies. And when they did the combination of the world broadcast, the R World broadcast, and when they also did this recording with all these singers, I mean, this is the ongoing party. This is a continuation of the party that was going on when they did A Day in the Life. We talked about that, that there was a party atmosphere when the orchestra came in. This is a continuation party that was going on with the Beatles, June, July, 1967. 
and the influence that this song had on the world. We were on top of the world because we felt as though that we could do anything we wanted as long as we had love in our life. Now, that's a very beautiful message. Yes, it's very idealistic, but hey, John Lennon was very idealistic. This is the guy that wrote the magic. You want to talk about idealism? So I wish you could have been there when this was happening. I'm telling you, it, it was unlike any other time period because when we got, once we got into 68, all this was fading quickly. It was fading not only in the world, but it was also fading. It was changing within the Beatles as well, 1968. If I had to pick a time, this would be the time. If I could tell your listeners, if you wanted to really experience what it was like to be in the world of the Beatles, when the Beatles were together, when they were releasing singles, this, my friends, is the time. From June, when Pepper was released on June 2nd, right through the summer of 1967, was total, complete magic, optimism, positivism. It was wonderful, and I miss it dearly especially in the world that we live in today. When they did this song, was it done live? Like it, it feels like it was recorded live. Was it, it was going over the air live. Was that the final version that made it to the record? No. They had recorded it in the studios, I've mentioned, along with Baby Richmond. If you listen carefully, the sound of Baby Richmond doesn't sound like the songs that were recorded at Abbey Road at EMI. They're in a different recording studio. They're using different equipment. And I can hear the difference. I don't know if you can or not. But no, they recorded this before the broadcast. They recorded it on different days during the month of June at Olympic. And then when they did the Our World broadcast, what George Martin did was he had the recording that they did of the single playing, and then the Beatles were playing live on top of it, or at least that's the impression that it looked like when you watch the film. The other thing that I wanted to mention worth pointing out is that toward the end of the song, you know, when you're going, love is all you need, love is all you need, and then Paul goes, all together now? Well, isn't it interesting that he's saying all together now? Because, as we know, as we get into 68, he wrote a song for Yellow Submarine called all together now. Again, these little motifs, these little themes, these little connections that go on with these brilliant songwriters, I just wanted to point that out to you in the audience, Tom.
Okay, we're, that's how we're going to end this today. Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right, buddy. All right. Okay. Uh, I'll talk to you later. Next episode, The Beatles, The White Album, First Record. Now enjoy an original Brook Hoppin composition, Bridges. Different generations. Different generations. Different way of thinking. Different way of thinking. Different opinions. Different opinions. Different way of saying things. Different way of saying things. Different ambitions. Different ambitions. Different way of doing things. Different way of doing things. Different desires. Desires. Different beds of fire. Fire. Different rationalities. Different personalities. We can make that and bridge our worlds together. We can episode.